Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing all right. Happy to you know be here. And though we're talking about heavy topics, uh, they are important to talk about. We are, it is going to be a show of heavy topics today. On, on today's podcast, we are going to talk about the shooting of Ahmad Arbery, a young black man who was shot while jogging through a neighborhood in South Georgia, down in Brunswick. Um, if you have paid any attention to the news, it, w- it would be difficult to not have heard about this incident in the last few weeks. Um, but we are going to talk about some of the issues surrounding this case, and including what's likely to happen uh, if this case is to go to trial and what the implications are or what the implications should be, rather, for changes to our laws that would uh, keep situations like these from happening in the future. And then for our second topic this week, we are going to talk about the status of the state budget. Um, So the legislature has been in recess since um, mid-March, is that right? Since the before times. (laughs) <laughs> since the before since before coronavirus changed everything um and the the big problem awaiting the legislature when they come back into session it it looks like that's going to happen in early june now is what to do about the state's budget given that the economic damage from the coronavirus has severely limited state revenue and is going to force lawmakers to balance the budget and make tough decisions about programs that have to be cut or hopefully revenues that will be raised. So we'll talk about where the budget stands. But let's start with our first topic for today. So in February, Ahmad Arbery was shot and killed by two white men in a neighborhood near Brunswick. Arbery was out for a jog in his neighborhood when the two men confronted him with guns because they claimed he resembled a burglary suspect. This case has shifted between prosecutors for two and a half months before a video of the shooting surfaced online, and shortly thereafter, murder charges were pressed against the two men who confronted Arbery. This case has brought scrutiny to prosecutors and police in the area about whether or not they have acted improperly, and it's also touched off a debate in our politics about whether whether Georgia needs to put a hate crimes law on the books. Luke, I think the, the sad place to start with this, though, before we dive into the ins and outs of this case and before we dive into the implications for for Georgia laws and, and policies on these issues is for many people, particularly for African-Americans, this is yet another example of an unarmed black person being shot as they go about their daily business. Um, what is your reaction to yet another one of these tragic situations? Well, my my reaction is uh, complicated and developing as as it is with all these unfortunate situations that you know keep happening to us uh, over and over in this country, and the feelings of just inability to get this solved. And I think that is part of the reason, you know, being honest as you know, two two white guys dealing with this issue, that we uh, our our analysis will be somewhat inadequate uh, because of that, because we're just not faced with the a possibility of going for a jog in our own neighborhood and getting shot by, you know, two random vigilantes. And I think it's, you know, also important for us to, you know, point out this is the second time we're recording this episode because of just how difficult it is to talk about this and how hard it is to to get it right. So I, I hope, uh, you know, our attempts to combat this 
situation will be adequate to the gravity of the situation in front of us. And, and with you know those caveats in place, I think my reaction is just that we, we have to do better. You know, like that's that's the thing that was really been hard for me to process the the right words for is just the unacceptability of this as a status quo, as this is a possibility, and of this as a specific tragedy, uh, you know, done upon not only Ahmaud Arbery, not only his family, not only Brunswick, not only Georgia, but just the whole country, that this is a loss that I think is easy to not fully recognize because whether Ahmad Arbery did anything wrong or not, I don't care. Is is you know, this is just not how our society should be built. This should not be something that's acceptable to anybody. And these actions should be easily condemned and the result of them easily universally mourned. And I I really hope that this is one of the last times we're going to have to talk about something like this. I know it's not going to be the last time, unfortunately, but I hope that this is at least getting us more towards the trajectory of the moral arc of the universe going in the right direction. Cause this situation really is just, yeah, another one that makes me feel like it's not going in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, it's a seething anger that I have. It's, it's profound heartache for Arbery's family and his friends and his community. And for the fact that, you know, society has not changed in a very meaningful way from the first other hundred times that this has happened. Um, you know, I think that that's, it, it's a, it's a feeling of, of deep despair and it, and it's one that comes to me despite the fact that this is not something that ever would have happened to me personally. I, you know, I think part of what has allowed this case to have a little bit more resonance for people than maybe some other cases is that Arbery was doing something that is so commonplace among among people going out for a job among in human beings <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean like is this is a very human thing to do it I mean and we all should think, be doing it more he <laughs> was a good example on that front of you know being active and uh having exer- you know getting exercise and, and one thing I do want to call out as I mentioned you know this is the second time we're having this conversation, I had a lot of problems uh, trying to properly communicate how I was feeling. And I want to give a lot of credit to uh, a Mr. Jim Barger Jr. who wrote for The Bigger Southerner an article called Ahmaud Arbery Holds Us Accountable. I highly recommend reading this if you have any thoughts on this case or uh, especially if you don't understand the outrage and don't understand why people are you know, reacting to this case in the way they are because I think it really highlighted to me and helped me articulate things I was feeling, especially with the sense that, you know, there, there's a profound loss here that, like, we will never fully understand because we never had an opportunity to meet Amog Arbery or, you know, be impacted by him because he clearly was someone who was well-known in his community, well-liked in his community, and used his jogs as a way to, you know, reach out to people in his community, and he, he was known around and seeing around jogging he would interact with you know people's kids and was very friendly and very polite and was just you know an outstanding person in in many ways you know we're all flawed i'm sure he had flaws but uh his his uh, um the good things of his character clearly were greater than any flaws he had and that loss that 
um, has been inflicted on our state and our community and just the world at large, I think, is is why people are so upset. And the fact that no one has a right to do what the McMichaels have done and the fact that and we're going to get into this kind of the tail end of our discussion of this topic the fact that there are laws on the books in georgia that give the mcmichaels a perception that they were doing the right thing or doing something acceptable i think is a a lasting problem that we're going to have to address if we're going to move away from these situations happening because they think they have cover and that's going to be that's not going away even if they get prosecuted. That cover will still exist for some other people, and this situation can repeat itself if we don't do something about it. Well, and that, I think, is what makes this doubly painful in light of other shootings of black people in their communities because so often those instances have not resulted in justice, have not resulted in the shooters being held criminally liable or, or being found to have violated people's rights. And I think, you know, that's why there were, that's part of why there were demonstrations calling for, calling for different consequences for prosecutors that we're going to get into here in a second. But, but that I think it's important when you're thinking about this to think about it as not one isolated incident of one person being killed in their neighborhood. It, it builds on other cases and the lack of justice in other cases and the the growing perception that the law does not protect people equally in our communities and it, and it particularly fails to protect black people in our communities. And I think that's why there's so much heartache and frustration here. Luke, let's talk a little bit about some of the concrete reasons why there's some heartache and frustration here too. It's important to understand that this this shooting took place on February 23rd and it was only in the last couple of weeks that video of the shooting surfaced online and that real progress was made in terms of the criminal justice system responding to and trying to begin a process of accountability here and that delay has contributed to feelings of frustration by observers and, and and observers have been particularly frustrated with the actions of district attorneys who have been involved early in this process. And that has led to the scrutiny on on the actions of these different district attorneys. And and the first player sort of in this case is the district attorney in the Brunswick area, Jackie Johnson. Can you tell us a little bit about the place that she sits in this story and why people may be frustrated with her. Yes. So I will say that Jackie Johnson probably is in the most complicated picture, uh, you know, of, of the public officials in this narrative, because there are many facets to the story. And as you kind of mentioned with larger systematic concerns, that applies to, you know, District Attorney Jackie Johnson and her office, and there are things that make her look a lot better in this situation, and there are some things that make her look a lot worse. So to just kind of nail down the specific complaints that are being laid against her, basically, this happened in Glen County. She is the District Attorney for Glen County and a couple other counties, including my home uh, county of Camden County. And so, naturally, a the situation happened in her jurisdiction, and under most circumstances, she would be the DA prosecuting. However, the complication comes in where George McMichael, the father and the father-son pair, 
that uh, murdered Ahmad Arbery was a former employee of hers and a longtime Glen County police officer before that. And so, according to her, we'll hit, we'll say what she says happened first, and then we'll hit on the uh, other narratives, is that some assistant district attorneys in her office were contacted immediately when, you know, police officers got onto the scene. They told them the situation. They told them who the, you know, murderers in this case, but suspects, you know, were. And they said... That is a former employee of our office. We are conflicted out and we cannot give you advice on this situation. Jackie Johnson claims that she did never, con- you know, never spoke to the officers on scene or any time after that. And then she recused herself and enlisted George Barnhill, who is another district attorney, to give those officers guidance, legal guidance on how to handle the situation. Because it's really important to point out here, DAs don't arrest anybody. They just advise police on if they should arrest people or not. So that is what Jackie Johnson basically said, is that they recused themselves pretty much immediately because this was a former employee. The criticism of Jackie Johnson comes from county commissioners and other local officials who claim that Jackie's office didn't recuse themselves immediately. They they more have told the police to stand down and to not arrest these people and to let them go. And then they recuse themselves after three days. So that's Jackie Johnson, the the district attorney with original jurisdiction. But when Johnson recuses herself, the case gets shifted over to George Barnhill, a district attorney from Waycross. And his act, his immediate actions upon taking over that case are also under scrutiny. What did George Barnhill do? And, and how do his actions comply with sort of normal standards of practice for district attorneys? So Barnhill is the first DA who really like gave this case a look because for you know Jackie Johnson's case, either narrative that you believe her office had it for approximately three days. And, you know, as someone in law school, I will just say that is not a lot of time to look at any case, no matter how clear the facts are. So Barnhill looks at the case, holds on to the case for a while, is thinking about the case. And then the Arbery's family asks him to recuse himself because... George Barnhill's son works in Jackie Johnson's office and they believe that to be a conflict and George Barnhill doing the right thing, uh, which I should have also said Jackie Johnson did the right thing by recusing herself and George Barnhill does the right thing by recusing himself because there is a conflict. That part's fine. But then what he does as he's recusing himself, he also writes a letter to the new DA who takes over, Tom Durgan, saying that there's basically no there there here in this case and there's no reason to uh, prosecute or arrest the McMichaels. And that is very irregular because, as you imagine, the idea of why you recuse yourself is because you have a conflict of interest and there is a reason why, ethically, you should not be making any decisions in this case. And by George Barnhill kind of putting his finger on the scale and saying that I don't think this is a case that should be prosecuted is not fully recusing himself in the way that he should and he's trying to influence the case when he really should not be. And 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 just to be clear, like this is highly irregular. Like this is not something that is frowned upon but some, a lot of people do it anyway. I really don't know of another case in my recent memory where someone has recuse themselves, but also said what their opinion on the case is. Yeah, this Association of District Attorneys blasted Barnhill's letter saying that his involvement could prevent a just outcome because this is not standard practice for district attorneys. 
so, th- so, you know, at this point, I think people are starting to understand that there are a lot of irregularities here, a lot of reasons to, to, to place scrutiny on the actions of, of public officials here. Another group that is involved that, that is probably warranted for more scrutiny is the Glenn County Police Department. Um, and Wes Wolf wrote an excellent overview of issues that the Glenn County Police Department has had. Um, that article is in Georgia Recorder, and, and we'll put a link in show notes. But he basically laid out several situations over the last decade that have resulted in five people dying in related to questionable police practices at the at the police department. One instance where a woman, Caroline Smalls, was shot by police after a police chase and police claimed that Smalls tried to run them over with her vehicle. Um, that happened in 2010. In 2018, a Glynn County Police Department a police lieutenant killed his estranged wife, her new boyfriend, and then killed himself. It is the subject of a lawsuit that the police department was aware that the officer had been stalking his estranged wife, had committed simple battery and, and criminal trespass, and that the police department did not take that seriously, did not turn over one of their own officers, and, and sort of by looking after their own officer contributed to the death of his estranged wife and her new boyfriend. And then additionally, in 2018, a man was killed as the passenger in a vehicle that was being chased by police. Um, and that happened after the police department gave the driver of that vehicle $1,000 to go buy meth as a part of what I assume was some kind of a, a drug enforcement scheme by the police department. The police department actually followed this car all the way to Florida and then back into their own jurisdiction in Glynn County before beginning a chase and involving uh, the Georgia State Patrol. And that chase resulted in uh, the, the lead car getting into an accident and Stephen Wayne DeLoach uh, was killed in that accident. All of these, I think, they're not directly related to the facts of the case here in terms of Ahmad Arbery, but we're going to talk about sort of the police department's approach to some general practices that may be questionable here. And when you get at the sort of underlying situations that generate anger in the community among people who feel like justice is not being served, when you layer Ahmad Arbery's murder on top of all of these underlying things, I think that you know, for people who are not from uh, this area for people who don't spend time there. I'm not from there either. I know you are, Luke. But but I think that this helps people from the outside understand that this is not an incident that just happened in a vacuum, that there are other underlying issues here that um, that have built up over time. No, that's definitely true. Um, if you want a good summary of the region, I could not highly recommend enough the book Praying for Sheetrock uh, that just is about uh, you know, the city of Darien, which is in, a near, in nearby McIntosh County. The police departments and sheriffs in South Georgia are really still from a different period, and the amount of power that those entities have cannot be stressed enough. Uh, one, one thing I want to be clear on, there's a lot of nuance to how the DAs handled this situation. There is not a lot of nuance on the Glynn County Police Department. There's been legislation drafted and introduced to basically destroy that department and make it cease to exist on the state level. Uh, Jackie Johnson, again, this is one of the things, you know, in the pro column for her has indicted the police chief and multiple uh, current and former officers in a perjury and witness tampering case. 
So there's a lot of problems with this police department, and I think of all the entities being scrutinized, I feel like this is the one where I really wish a lot more attention was being paid because these are the people who are truly doing the most wrongdoing on a consistent basis and has a history of doing wrong, do, you know, doing uh, the wrong thing. Uh, you know, John, you know, Jackie Johnson has had roles both positive and negative. Uh, confirmed and alleged in a lot of those cases um, and deserves more scrutiny. Um, the the thing that I think this situation highlights for me, I think is most important for me, is two things. One, I am incredibly happy that the GBI and now I think even maybe the FBI are starting to look into how the DAs handled these cases and if they did anything wrong or not. And I think that is great. I wish the DAs would, you know, publicly say we welcome these investigations because we did nothing wrong. Um, I think Johnson's office may have said something along those lines. I think that's going to be important because either way, I think sunlight's the best disinfected. Getting down to the facts will be really important. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, though, um, and this is part of what made our last attempt at this conversation so difficult is I've been frustrated by some of the people who have called just immediately for resignations. And the reason for that is one on Johnson's part, she recused so quickly. I don't know if that is the right response because ethically speaking and being the law school brained person I am, that seems like the right call and to not get involved is the right call. While that might not be the most satisfying thing emotionally for when there's something that seems like such a clear wrong being uh you know pursued by the michaels that that does not immediately result in their arrest and that's what the glenn county police department should have been responsible for is like seeing those facts and knowing these people should have been arrested regardless of the fact that the da is saying that you know they can't get involved in that case but what even if Jackie's version of you know the situation is true, what I think both her and Barnhill are definitely failing at now is they are not taking this as an opportunity to be proactive public servants and address the things that we're going to talk about in the back half of this conversation and try to call for reform, call for more accountability, and you know at the very least just say that like this situation sucks, this situation is terrible. And while we think we did everything right in this specific situation, the fact that there's this much public outcry shows us that we have to do better. And even if we did everything we're supposed to do, maybe that's not good enough. And maybe we should work to do better. And I think on that front, it's very responsible and appropriate to call for more from both of these DAs. And the only thing I would... You know, and again, this is this is my lawyer brain talking and not my emotional brain talking. I would I would wish there would be some way that you could give the opportunity for these folks to do the right thing and try to partner with them, despite the fact they're Republicans in the Deep South. Give them the opportunity to do the right thing and do what you would have done in the situation and try to help them see the path towards that and not just immediately say they should resign and immediately support their opponent because you know from what i've heard the opponent jackie has who's running as an independent was a prosecutor previously who was very 
much the wing at all cost type and the let's put as many people in jail type as possible. And so just the immediacy of like, Jackie is bad, opponent must be good because not Jackie, I don't think is very productive. And I think trying to have a ongoing relationship and try to help people get to the place you want them to be is far more productive than the scorched earth approach that uh, a lot of people have taken in this situation. And I think that approach also has harmed the ability to see all of the issues in the Glen County Police Department that are going on because so much of the focus has been on the DAs. So there's been all this focus on on DAs and, and questionable police practices, but Luke, this is a case that does move forward now. Um, just to sort of set the table for folks here, where are we in the legal process now? The McMichaels have been arrested, but what comes next? As we highlight with you know George Barnhill's letter, DAs could have moved faster on this. They didn't. They should have, but. The other thing that has been truly slowing this thing down is the COVID-19 situation. As it slowed down everything else, we are still in a judicial state of emergency. And so even though, thankfully, there have been charges brought and the McMichaels are now in jail, they won't face just, you know, they won't have their day in court for quite some time. There's two reasons for that. One, the judicial process under the best circumstances is pretty slow. The other one is because we're still in a judicial state of emergency, um, at least until June and until that happens, we can't have a grand jury called, which is a ne- necessary prerequisite for uh, them actually proceeding with a court case against them. And so there's still going to be some time uh, before the McMichaels are in court, assuming that all the procedural things that have to be done to have this case go forward do happen, which I fully expect they will uh, based on the evidence they have. So, Luke, as we look towards these next steps, um, when this case will eventually appear before a grand jury, this case will also have its fourth prosecutor. Uh, Who is the newest prosecutor in this case, and and why are we on uh, District Attorney number four? So the fourth prosecutor is a prosecutor in Cobb County named Joyette Holmes. Uh, This was previously the third DA was Tom Durgan, who is in the Atlantic circuit, um, which is uh, on the coast like uh, Glen County and uh, Barnhill's jurisdiction. So the reason now it's in Cobb County is that um, it has been previously established that Cobb County is a similar jurisdiction to Glen County. And so that like the racial and economic composition of the two counties are similar. So since it's not going to be in Glen County, uh, it's been, you know, found that Cobb County is a like reasonable substitute, basically, uh, and so that's that's where it's going to take place. Well, and the other thing that sounds like it's at play here, Luke, is that this case has become such a large endeavor or such a resource-intensive endeavor that the uh, district attorney's office in Cobb County appeared to be the one that had the resources necessary to to actually take on this case. But once you know, as we get into this case at least I think, and I, I could be wrong about this, but at least I think the, the rationale that Barnhill, District Attorney Barnhill put forward when he said that there was not, that there were not grounds to arrest the McMichaels shortly after Arbery was killed, that that reasoning may come back to define what this case is about. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the rationale that Barnhill described in his letter and the kind of defense that the McMichaels are likely to put on the table if this ultimately ends up in a trial. 
So, Cal, you're absolutely right that the justification in the Barnhill letter is probably going to be the entire case, if not a substantial part of it, which is basically that the McMichaels had a legal right to stop Ahmaud Arbery because of the citizen's arrest statute in Georgia, which, you know, basically gives ordinary people the ability to stop and arrest people who they witness committing a felony. There's some obviously important nuances in that and are, you know, are going to come out in court uh, around the questions of if the McMichaels actually witnessed or had probable cause that, you know, um, Ahmaud Arbery was committing a felony. And uh, if even if they did have that, were they right to use as much force as they did? Yeah, Luke, and I, I think people who are observing this are are beginning to pick up on on pieces of information that may weigh in one direction or another a particular point of interest in this case is becoming this home in the neighborhood that was under construction. It was a home that was open. You know, the doors were not attached so people could come and go. Well, it was um, under construction. So, I mean, it was really pretty easy to get into. Yeah, yeah. Easily accessed. Um, and and the home had a motion-activated uh, camera in it that allowed for the homeowner who lived a couple hours away, he was constructing this house himself, it allowed for him to sort of monitor his property. And you may have seen in the press in recent days, screenshots of videos from that home that appear to show Arbery in that home. Um, and so it has become a point of interest about why Arbery was in that home on the day that he was shot, what he was doing there, and how that might factor into the defense the Mike the McMichaels are likely to put forward. But we are also learning about a couple of other pieces of information here. One that the owner of the home believes from having watched the video that what Arbery was likely doing on that property was getting water from working sinks that were on the property. You know, it's it's well known that he was out for a jog, it sort of makes sense that he would be getting water if he felt like there was a place where he could do it. Another piece of information that that has emerged is that the Glen County Police Department basically recommended McMichael to the owner of the home under construction as somebody who could come over and check up on the house when the owner's motion-activated camera caught motion in the house and, and, you know, to check it out to see if there were any concerns about the safety of the property or anything being stolen or anything like that. And, and then the other sort of foundation for this is some reporting from the AJC that suggests that people in the community were increasingly calling the Glen County Police Department to report burglaries and break-ins, although somewhat confusingly, there are not official police reports on these things. But it appears that people in the neighborhood were somewhat sensitive to break-ins of cars or homes or, or things being stolen. So all of that are, are sort of pieces of information that are beginning to kind of dribble out. And I think a lot of people who are yearning for direction, yearning for concrete information in this case may want to look at these things as, as justifying one party's actions or, or the other's. How do you think these pieces of information that are emerging that, that people may be seeing in the press, how do you think that they ultimately fare if this case goes to trial? So, you know, again, I'm not a lawyer, definitely not your lawyer, but from what I know and from what I've learned in, in law school, the 
thing I that this case is really going to turn on is there's one key important point because all the information we're going to learn, you know, we've been learning the past couple weeks, there's going to be even more of it by the time this thing goes to trial, if it goes to trial. And the most important point is basically going to be the answer to the question of did the McMichaels have probable cause to believe that they witnessed Arbery committing a felony? Because if they did, then that means they had a right, a right to stop him and to arrest him. And if they did not, that means that basically everything they did was illegal, even from trying to stop him was illegal. And, you know, so like on, on that front, to handle the easier scenario, if the prosecution is able to convince a jury that the McMichaels had no probable cause whatsoever to think that they had witnessed Arbery committing a felony, then they have very little defense in my mind. So just just to draw this out a little bit, though. So if they don't witness the commission of a felony, then they don't have a right to stop him. So then when they do stop him without a legal right to do so, they have instigated this encounter and can't really credibly claim that they had a right to defend themselves in a situation in which they instigated a confrontation. Yeah, and I mean, like, not only that, like, you could argue that, like, kidnapping <laughs> you know like you like there's more crimes if if they did not have a legal right to stop him so like that's that's another thing and it certainly lends to arbury's right to defend his own life which you know the facts show he had reason to to be fearful of his life he ultimately lost his life so the fact that he and the younger mcmichael get into this this physical confrontation over the shotgun if arbury is just randomly stopped by people in the neighborhood who he doesn't know and they are carrying weapons, he is certainly within his right to defend himself and his own life um, in that situation. Right. And, and, you know, again, this is the most, the more easy interpretation of events, legally speaking, um, and the least um, helpful for the McMichaels. The more complicated scenario, which we should spend more time on is the scenario. If, you know, the jury ultimately would decide that the McMichaels had a legal right to stop him. That doesn't mean they're home free either, because at least from my watching of the video, it seems like um, the younger McMichael fires on Arbery as he's trying to run away, or he's not, you know, directly engaging him. And so if that is true, then that's really not a good self-defense claim. If you're shooting someone from behind or from the side, if he, you know, if Arbery is coming for him, then they can argue about that. But, you know, unfortunately, that is about the moment that, you know, there's the the video has a pretty good view on things for most of it. And of course, you know, this very important five second period is something that isn't 100 percent clear. Um, that's going to, you know, because there still is a in my, you know, in my estimation, the penalty for theft is not death, and so there's a pretty clear argument for uh, you know excessive use of force, and that this was not necessary to stopping Arbery, and, or you know because they had already called nine one one, the police were, was on the way. So even if they had a right to stop him, it does not mean they had a right to shoot him. Is the point I'm trying to get out and <laughs> trying to be articulate in saying. And I think even if the jury thinks they had a legal right to stop them. That does not mean the jury thinks that le they had a legal right to shoot him. And so 
uh, while there is some evidence that's coming out that you know makes the McMichael's position that they felt like they were doing something that was legally justified, especially when you add on the front that they were kind of deputized by this very crappy, very corrupt police department to look in on this situation. I think even that won't save them uh, for with 100% certainty because of the fact it was not necessary to shoot Ahmaud Arbery, even if they had a legal right to stop him. So that, I think, is is a good overview of what this case is going to be about. Undoubtedly, additional facts will surface um, in in a lot of debate will be had. A lot of pressing of an eventual jury will happen over, you know, the different legal rights that the McMichaels may claim in this process. So we certainly can't tell you how it's going to turn out now, but, but as these pieces of information come out, it's likely that they are going to fit into this sort of overall framework of the McMichaels defense and, um, it'll be interesting to watch how Joyette Holmes, the new uh, district attorney from Cobb County, how she prosecutes this case um, and, and handles those defenses from the McMichaels. Um, but we are a politics podcast. This is a, a this is an issue of criminal law, but it is also an issue that is playing out in our politics. And the one uh, sort of immediate reaction to this within the political sphere has been a groundswell uh, in support of hate crimes legislation. Uh, Georgia is one of only four states to not have a hate crimes law on the books. And I think one reason that this, in some sense, is sort of low-hanging fruit is sort of the the most immediate thing that activist energy has jumped behind in the, in the wake of this tragedy is Georgia legislatively in a legislative process is about halfway to having a hate crime statute during the current legislative session, although I believe this was the last calendar year, uh, the House of Representatives did pass a hate crimes bill through that chamber. Um, and so as we look forward to the legislature returning in summer, there has been activist energy demanding that the Senate take up and pass the House's hate crimes legislation. One of the most vocal proponents of that has been House Speaker David Ralston, the bill has already cleared his chamber and he wants the Senate to take up his chamber's bill and move it pretty quickly. But it has been interesting sort of in the context of what might have been typical Republican reactions amidst these situations. It seems that there has been a little bit more enthusiasm for a legislative response that speaks to the feelings that people have about this situation. You know, I'm thinking about other situations related to gun crimes where Democrats will say, oh, we need, you know, restrictions on on gun ownership and, and the use of guns. And, and Republicans will typically throw up their hands and say, well, that wouldn't have stopped this situation. So we're, we don't want to do anything legislatively because it wouldn't have helped. Um, this is a somewhat related issue, also would not have stopped this situation from happening uh, but Republicans appear appear warmer to the idea. Governor Kemp, who usually does not comment on pending legislation, described himself as open to the hate crimes uh, proposal that's being put forward. But the action here is going to be in the Senate. Lieutenant Governor Duncan doesn't have a position on this. And Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Jesse Stone sounded skeptical. It's his committee that has stopped previous versions of hate crimes uh, legislation. 
and his committee is probably going to be the one that has to move it forward if it if it does move forward when the legislature reconvenes. Luke, what do you think about this push on hate crimes legislation? Do you think that this groundswell is likely to push this legislation forward? And do we think that that should be the whole solution? I definitely hope that this groundswell is able to push this piece of legislation over the hump. I think part of the reason why Republicans, or at least some Republicans, have been uh, eager to embrace it is because this is something they are already willing to do. And this is what I think they all hope is a way for them to push it forward and to get it done is by using this situation as fuel for that. Because, you know, legislatures are very, very peculiar creatures. And whenever you find something that can grease the wheels of the legislature and push something through, you use it. Um, I think, as you mentioned, and it's appropriate to mention that this would not have solved this issue, but I think just in the same way that it's important to get laws off the books that don't represent what your society is supposed to look like and what your social compact is supposed to be, I think it's just as important in getting laws on the books that say these things. And I think on, you know, on net... If citizens' arrest statutes and standard ground statutes make these situations like the Ahmaud Arbery case more likely, I think hate crime statutes make them less likely, even if it's just in the aggregate, even if it's, you know, one percentage. I will take any benefit uh, we can get towards pursuing these situations not happening, and even if it's a marginal benefit, I'll take it. So with that being said, I want to firmly say that, like, this is not enough, and I hope that we start seeing calls for more packages from more people that uh, will address these situations. But that being said, hate crimes definitely needs to be on the books in Georgia. And I hope that this is enough to get pushed through. Let's talk a little bit about some other ideas, some other existing laws and policies that may need to be reformed that speak a little bit more directly to the facts of this case. To me, my conception of this is that part of what contributed to Ahmad Arbery being shot by his neighbors in his own neighborhood is there is a legal framework that allowed the McMichaels to pursue somebody that they thought was a burglary suspect, that allowed the McMichaels to do this while armed, and that allowed them or sort of enabled them when this became a confrontation to feel legally justified to use deadly force. And I'm sure this list is not exhaustive. The, the only caveat but, I got is when, when they make a confrontation, but otherwise, yes. Yeah. Um, so this may not be an exhaustive list, but the things in, in my reading that have jumped out to me, the sort of laws and policies that have contributed to this environment include the citizen's arrest statute, which District Attorney Barnhill sort of labeled as the the underlying legal framework for why the McMichaels initially shouldn't be arrested. Sandra ground laws, which in instances where somebody is carrying a gun, they in certain instances can have legal justification to use deadly force when they are being threatened. And then this concept, uh, which is really a, a Supreme Court doctrine called qualified immunity, um, which is, I think, related, but but is sort of in a separate bucket. So we'll take that one last. 
on these first two, though, citizens arrest laws and stand your ground laws, I think these are pretty cut and dry. If it had not been legal for the McMichaels to chase down Ahmad Arbery because they believed him to be a suspect who committed a felony, then it seems to me unlikely that the McMichaels would have put themselves in that situation. I think that is particularly true given that Mike Michaels' background as an investigator. I think he probably felt he was acting as a sort of quasi-law enforcement officer in that instance. But but to me, it's pretty clear that the citizen's arrest statute particularly is one in need of reform. There's a link to a paper in our show notes, an argument being laid out by an American University law professor, Ira Robbins, who describes the background of citizens' arrest laws. They basically come from medieval times when governments at the time did not have sophisticated state-sponsored police forces that could arrive at the scene of a crime in a reasonable amount of time. And therefore, the laws that were on the books, there was some duty of citizens and some ability of citizens to enforce those laws. That environment does not really describe the modern day police environment in which we live. You know, if a crime is committed, typically officers can be on the scene within minutes. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of reason for citizens to take the law and enforcement of the law into their own hands. There also is a lot of confusion around the whole concept of citizens arrests, what rights it actually gives you, how you can make a citizens arrest in a safe and lawful way. And obviously, in this case, it it seems to have led the McMichaels into a situation where they felt justified to use deadly force. You know, standard ground laws, I think, kind of fall into a similar bucket, have similar problems. And all of this is layered on top of a gun culture where people have easy access to guns and and feel like guns are sort of primarily a tool of self-defense. Luke, when you think about these policies, what are your thoughts on whether or not these are the right policies to change? And, And do you think that they're would be sort of a real bipartisan effort. I mean, certainly, you know, liberal activists and, and progressive Democrats may feel emboldened to call for these changes, but but is there a real path forward for these changes actually to come to fruition? So as much as I love Red Dead Redemption, I think uh, having a Old West-style justice system is a really terrible idea, especially in 21st century. This is just one example of why it is such a bad idea So, you know, from my perspective, citizens arrest, I would hope would be the easier of these policies to get repealed. I'm sure there's more policies besides the ones we're talking about that we should, you know, be looked at and adjusted for modern times. But this one is the big one, I think, because this whole situation would not have happened or hopefully would not have happened, but definitely would not be as legally complicated if this statute did not exist. And I really don't, I I don't remember a happy, you know, good feelings for all example of citizens arrest in our lifetimes that I've ever heard about. I've heard plenty of disaster stories. And so I would hope that this is a place where Republican legislators would be willing to have a conversation in trying to get rid of this and just completely get, get it off the books. Because I would think, you know, we don't want vigilanteism. We don't think that is good. There's only one acceptable vigilante. That is Batman. And Batman is fake. (laughs) So, you know, it's like we should not allow this. So that being said, I think that one should be easy. I would hope that there aren't a whole bunch of Republicans out there who think that, you know, like what we really need 
is more citizens trying to be law enforcement. I just, I, 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 you know, I, I haven't heard the arguments against this yet. I am just hopeful in my heart that they won't start rising up. Um, but I'm not, um, I'm, I'm expecting to have to roll my eyes in a couple weeks for when Republic, some Republicans start saying we need this. Stand your ground, I think it's going to be a lot harder just because that one's been politicized and it's, you know, been part of the con- previous controversies uh, about these shootings, you know, notably the Trayvon Morgan case. And I think since there is the, as you properly mentioned, a self-defense element in standard ground, even if I, you know, even if you and I think it's improper, it's still there. Um, I think that's just going to be a harder conversation to have with Republicans because they are very pro Second Amendment, very pro the concept of having people, you know, have a very liberal right to defend themselves in quotations. And so that one, I also think, needs to at the very least, be heavily reformed, if not completely removed. Uh, But I think that one will be a lot harder. And then the last one that's kind of on my list, it it sort of expands this conversation to include shootings that involve actual law enforcement. You know, so the McMichaels here are acting on the citizen's arrest statute. They are implicitly by saying that they are saying that they are not law enforcement. They do not retain the same rights as law enforcement because they have acted under an authority given to citizens. But for people who are distraught at the shooting of Ahmaud Arbery and the shootings of black people in our country, they are not just thinking about shootings by vigilantes who would take the law into their own hands. They are also thinking about shootings by police officers where police officers have not been held to account, whether in a criminal context or in a civil context, for their actions. And qualified immunity is this Supreme Court doctrine that has basically enabled police officers to avoid liability in a, in a civil context for violations of people's constitutional rights. These violations of constitutional rights can take the form of a shooting. They could also take the form of sort of unlawful search and seizure or truly heinous treatment of an individual that does not necessarily result in their death. But this concept of qualified immunity has basically placed limits on people's ability to sue in civil court, to have recognitions of their constitutional rights, to have those recognized in courts, and and I think indirectly has created yet another mechanism whereby police avoid accountability for their actions, which really takes the air out of the balloon for efforts to improve the processes of police departments, to improve the ways in which they treat people in their communities. Because if you're not going to help be held liable for it, whether thrown in jail for violating a criminal law or by having your department or specific officers be forced to pay millions of dollars in damage in civil context, there's no incentive for police officers who are currently resistant to reforms to their policing practices to adopt those reforms. Whereas if you had a a judgment in the magnitude of millions of dollars against a police department, it likely is a catalyst for reform there. Luke, what, you know, when I introduced this concept of bringing law enforcement involved shootings into this, what is, what is your reaction there? And I mean, I'm looking for something that sort of speaks to to a broader issue here 
do you think that this fits here and 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 sort of meets the desire of people who have been distraught by these situations to to get justice against more than just vigilantes? Well, I, I think I'll you know wrap this topic where I started, which is we have to do better. You know, that's exactly where I started. That's exactly where I end up. Is that we just have to do better, and I think that this is still not enough. Even if we did everything that we hit on on this episode, that every change was adopted, I still don't think that's enough because this is a pervasive cultural problem and just fixing the laws, it'll go a long way, but it won't do everything. And so I think what I really want to see, both from the Jackie Johnsons of the world who want to be public servants and our state representatives and our law enforcement, is them being proactive about saying, this is how we're going to do better. This is how we're going to prevent this from happening in the future. And doing the hard, necessary work and getting their hands dirty in trying to figure these issues out because this is not new. This is not a surprise. This is something that has happened once again and will happen again. And so with that firmly in mind, there's no excuse now to accept the status quo. And so I think what I would really like to see is some state-level action and some local action on you know our public officials saying this is how we're going to do better. And until we see that in a larger way, in a narrative way, and not a we're putting a band-aid on this tragedy, but a we're going to work every day to prevent this from happening again, I don't think we're going to see the results we want to see, unfortunately. Because even you know as we properly give Speaker Ralston some credit for trying to move in the right direction with the hate crimes legislation, it's just not enough, you know, and it's not enough to just handle the the three things that really influence this situation. It, we got to handle the whole system, and that's a long project, but if you, you know, the first step to engaging in the project is saying you're going to engage in the project, and we haven't even gotten that out of lawmakers really on either side of the aisle yet, because um, most of the attention has been on the injustice of this one situation, which I think is not inappropriate, but I think we need to start pivoting towards that longer discussion. And, you know, it's the whole system has these issues because, you know, down in Glen County, Jackie Johnson has an independent candidate um, who, again, you know, deserves a full examination uh, as much as she does. Um, and that's rare. In most cases, DAs are not... Uh, you know, do not have opposition either in the primary or the general election. They run unopposed. They're there for decades. Uh, our own DA, or previous, since I'm in Oglethorpe County now, in you know Athens, had been the DA for basically 20 years without opposition. And the first time there was any hint of opposition since Deborah Gonzalez started running for the position, he stepped down, which created an opportunity for uh, Governor Kemp to cancel that election. And so even in the cases where there's an opportunity for reform and an opportunity for uh, better things to happen, we have these situations where the state law has allowed those elections to be canceled and to prevent change from happening. And the Supreme Court just ruled in yet another way that promotes the strangling of democracy, um, which is you know, a continuing problem in Georgia. We're going to talk about it on our next show in greater detail, but my, my main point on just bringing these things up is just that this is a continuous fight that needs to be uh, waged on all fronts because 
the opponents of progress are waging that fight on all you know, on all fronts, and these things are all connected. And you know, the ability to cancel a DA's race in Athens does affect the whole state. It does set precedents. It does prevent progress. Um, except you know, it prevents the ability for Athens to show other jurisdictions how to do a better job. It prevents a lot of things that the state needs. And you know, lying down and just letting these things happen and not calling them out and not connecting them, I think is a, a really, really big mistake. And I hope that we start to see more concerted action on the part of Democrats and activists on just pointing out the fact that these things are all connected, and if we don't start addressing all of them, we're going to just keep seeing this lack of progress that is resulting in already so much tragedy. So let's close today's episode with a brief discussion of where the state budget stands so the legislature has begun to conduct committee hearings again. Um, it has been interesting, like all things in life, to watch this be migrated to to Zoom and to video chat. But they legislature the the two appropriations committees in the House and the Senate got together for a virtual hearing last week to talk about the state of the state budget, and that is the main coming attraction for when the legislative session formally returns. I believe as of now, it is expected, the legislature is expected to convene again in full in June. Uh, but part of what is driving that schedule is the need to both address the state budget and the problems that it is going to face amidst the economic collapse in the state, but also to bring the legislature back into session when lawmakers understand what is actually going to have to happen with the budget once we have data on where revenues are and where uh, needs are related to state programs. But what we know about the state budget now is that agencies have been instructed by the governor's office, by his Office of Planning and Budget, to plan for cuts, across-the-board cuts, of 14%, which would amount to about $3.5 billion in cuts if these plans were to be ultimately adopted as they are instructed currently in this preliminary form. And sort of the main issue driving the need for cuts at this point is the fact that the response to the coronavirus pandemic has meant these stay-at-home orders that we've talked about. It has meant generally that people, even if they are venturing out of their homes, are not spending the amounts that they usually are to keep the economy moving forward. It means that millions of people across the country and in our state have been laid off, meaning that they do not have money to spend to support the economy. And that has created this downward spiral that is going to put pressure on the state budget and reduce revenue and enforce the legislature to have to balance a budget with much less money than they were anticipated to have. Luke, we've been talking about budget cuts uh, for quite a while on this show. We entered this legislative session with a with the governor instructing agencies to plan for 6% cuts to the budget. Uh, we are now dealing with an environment where the cuts are going to be much, much steeper than the ones they were trying to consider when session began. What is on your mind in terms of next steps here and in terms of the decisions that face lawmakers 
and how they can move forward with a budget that doesn't force vulnerable people in our state to basically pay for this economic downturn. Well, the first thing that is on my mind is uh, what the esteemed Senator John McCain said during the economic crisis in 2007 and 8, which was, it's always darkest right before it's pitch black. Um, Sage advice. Sage advice. And, you know, I really wish I had like some optimistic take that is not that, but no, it's darkest right before it's pitch black, uh, for sure. And uh, that that's how I'm feeling right now, because... The 6% cuts that Kemp was already calling for was already tightening the budgets of agencies that barely had any money to begin with because they were still operating at austerity levels uh, from the Great Recession. And the thing is, is just like Georgia's budget is pretty big in, you know, in size compared, you know, for any human being like no one run very few people run businesses this big very few people run enterprises this more big. than 20 billion dollars it's hard yeah 20 billion dollars thank you kyle uh and so like you know 14 percent of 20 billion is a lot and so you know the 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 thing i would i would start with is like the fact that we have to cut right now is constitutionally mandated that makes sense and the fact that we have to cut because we're getting less revenue in, that makes sense. On its face, that makes sense. What doesn't make sense is Kemp's laissez-faire attitude to what I feel like most other governors or human beings would be running around with their heads on fire about because Kemp is approaching this, you know, from the Rahm Emanuel perspective of never let a crisis go to waste because he had been quoted, and I think this was like a webinar with economic, uh, you know, conservative economists. He was saying, quote, it's a great opportunity for us to revive conversations about doing more with less. Okay, that's not what I would be thinking right now. I would be far more concerned about the legitimate things that state does that the only only really the state can do that are going to be lost here and this is just another reminder as i said earlier in this episode and throughout all the time that elections have consequences and the consequence of electing a governor who does not believe the government has a role to do anything has consequences and this is the consequences that Kemp does not see this as a problem he sees it as a great opportunity that he's excited for and you can see that because he there is no willingness at least thus far in how he approached the cuts previously the six percent cuts or these 14 percent across the board cuts that he's saying to involve the legislature he is governor he is gog he demands 14 percent cuts across the board make it happen and I think that is not going to be that's not the right way to handle this situation. Um, and I'm distressed that that is our starting point. Yeah, I mean, constitutionally, the the governor does essentially get the starting point within our budgeting process. Um, but obviously, this is a there are procedural things like instructing agencies to list out the budget proposals that they will make, then the governor will present those to the legislature. I'm a little bit unclear about how the process will change now that we're sort of coming back to this again in the middle of legislative session, that is sort of the the standard procedure when you are entering session starting in the fall and going through the beginning of the session in January. But what is distressing to me, there there's sort of two pieces of information that make this 
really distressing to me. The first is that there really is no discussion of revenue. So you mentioned that, you know, it's it's understandable that the state would be in a position to cut given constitutional mandates. The constitutional mandate, to be clear, is that the state have a balanced budget. You can do that one of two ways. You can find more revenue to meet the spending that you had planned to do in the first place, or you can cut spending to meet the revenue that you have. Realistically, you do a mix of both. But what is has not been discussed that I've seen from Governor Kemp, the posture that I have not seen him put forward, is that we have to attack this problem by cutting and by finding revenue. Now, there are two places that you could currently find revenue in this situation, the first of which is you can demand that the federal government provide aid to states, and they should also provide this aid to local governments, but that's sort of a separate discussion. You can demand that the federal government provide federal money and aid to states so that the cuts do not have to be as deep and so that you can find opportunities to protect vital services. The chairman of both the House and Senate Appropriations Committees, Terry England on the House side, Blake Tillery on the Senate side, they signed on to a letter to the congressional delegation asking for federal money to help cover this shortfall. I haven't seen that kind of posture from Kemp. The other place that you can find money is by looking for opportunities to raise revenue, to be blunt, through tax increases. Uh those tax increases can take the form, uh, as has been suggested by the budget, Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, of increasing the tobacco tax in the state to make it on par with the national average, or to consider paring back tax breaks that go to companies that, it, this is a longer discussion too, but the short version of which is that are, are poorly regulated, that we don't really understand if they bring the economic return that lobbyists say they do. Um, you could pare back some of those tax breaks to effectively find tax revenue from businesses who currently benefit from those breaks. The, that's piece number one that's really distressing to me is we're not talking about revenue, we're only talking about cutting. Piece number two that's distressing to me is that when you decide to abandon revenue, you have to make bigger cuts to make the, the numbers work. That means that you cannot exempt education spending, spending on Medicaid and on health care, two big budget items that were exempted from the previous call for cuts from Brian Kemp. Those are not going to be exempted, at least while these plans are being developed initially, meaning that teachers are likely to get laid off or furloughed, state employees are likely to get laid off or furloughed. It's really unclear about amidst a global pandemic, a global public health crisis, what will happen to the state's spending on healthcare services through Medicaid and other health services like crisis behavioral health services. Um, it's unclear what's going to happen there, but we definitely know in the beginning there is not a blanket exemption, meaning there is going to be a lot of scrutiny on the impact, the true human toll of what happens because of the state cutting billions of dollars from their budget and potentially cutting people off of vital services or cutting people off of their employment with the state at a time when the economy surrounding us is also collapsing. And so as we stand here today, we are, we're not back in 
into the legislative session yet. We are beginning to get reports and beginning to understand the gravity of this fiscal crisis for the state. Um, it's going to be really important to watch the decisions that policymakers make and to put pressure on them to be sure that a economic downturn that has now grown in size to, to nearly equal to the Great Depression, that the burden of that is not put on the state's most vulnerable residents. Luke, that was a uh, that was a rant filled with with all of my opinions. I am not a member of the legislature. I'm not in the governor's office. I'm not an elected official in our state. The party that is supposed to be standing in opposition here are the Democrats who are in the minority in the House and the Senate. How should Democrats, in your view, sort of react? How should they play a role? in this this budget discussion. So Democrats should, you know, follow the league of what Democrats have been doing on the federal level, which is be responsible and put out policy ideas that would meet the moment. And I think that is really really critical and Democrats need to be caught trying at the very least. Maybe we'll succeed some, but at least be caught trying in trying to make this crisis not be completely borne by the people who are on the lowest parts of society, you know, because we've been having this conversation outside of the, you know, immediate conversation we're having, but about essential workers, about the people who we think are important, a lot of controversy in Georgia about how we opened up and all the people who uh, were most at risk when we opened up were, you know, the people who are already bearing much of the burden of existence uh, in, in, you know, in the community that we built in Georgia. Of You know, these are the people who probably worked harder than most people in the state and were paid less for it. And now we're asking them to work even harder, be paid just as less, and risking COVID. And the fact that the you know, thank you that they're going to get from the state government is that the few services, the already sparse and not good enough services that the state provided to individuals who are struggling are going to be cut even further. is just appalling to me and angers me um, beyond words, just like our first story did. Um, and so the fact that that, that status quo cannot just be accepted, right? Like, so, you know, Democrats need to be caught trying pointing out ways that we could be increasing revenue, making Republicans say, no, we don't want to do that. Or, you know, maybe they'll say yes and we'll be pleasantly surprised. But, you know, that's that's what I want to have happen is them to show that there is an alternative. And as I properly started, while, you know, some cuts are necessary, there are ways to make this not be as bad. There are ways to make sure that if it is going to be really bad, that that burden is shared among everyone's society. And not just the poorest who are already getting screwed. Um, and I, I, it's up to Democrats to do that because the Republicans are not going to. Because as I hinted to and kind of skipped a couple steps and you filled in the blanks for me, but Brian Kemp just ideologically does not is not concerned with these issues. He's ideologically not concerned with government government helping individual people, and he's not interested in finding new revenue sources even if they're objectively a good idea because he's against new revenue for government he's against any revenue for government and this situation just proves that even even more so if it wasn't already obvious um and so that's what democrats need to be doing they need to be proposing 
ways that this situation could be improved upon. And there's going to be a lot of pressure not to do that. Um, and they need to stand up against that pressure and to show everyone in the state of Georgia why they should vote for Democrats. Because if they don't do it now, I don't know when they will. Well, I think that is where we will close for today. Um, A lot of challenging issues face our legislature when they come back into session. They will uh, obviously have to finish the 2020 legislative session to get through those 40 days um, and the constitutional mandate within the legislative session before it can end is that they have to pass this budget. Uh, So these are conversations. Yes, a balanced budget. It has to pass before they can leave town. These are conversations that will be had uh, in the early summer um, in advance of election season this fall. So with what lawmakers decide to do in this instance, uh, I hope that is what listeners and voters will keep in mind as they head to the polls or maybe vote by mail for their uh, representatives in the legislature, along with big federal races in November. But with that, I think we are going to leave that there for today. Uh, So Luke Boggs, thank you for joining today's podcast. Thanks for having me. We'll talk to you all again soon. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.